In our Bibles to John chapter 8. I'm enjoying this journey through John. We'll see how far we get tonight. We do have communion tonight at the end of the service, so, um, well, we'll see how far we get. There's a lot in John chapter 8. On Sunday, if you missed it, you can pick up the CD or cassette. Um, We went through this story in the first 11, 12 verses of John 8 about the woman who was caught in adultery and how Jesus dealt with her. It was one of those situations that causes us to see um, the contrast between sinners who come to Jesus and receive his forgiveness and self-righteous Pharisees and others who think they don't need help and And they don't understand what he's saying. In the rest of this chapter, Jesus will have an interaction with some of these guys, these Jewish religious leaders. And and the thing that jumps out during this whole chapter for me is how easy it is to miss what God is saying and what he is doing. And we've all lived that in our lives. There are times when we look back and just think, what was I thinking? How did I miss the leading of God, how did I miss his voice so um, completely? And these guys who brought this woman caught in adultery to Jesus were of that ilk. You know the story basically, and we won't go through it again. The thing is, Jesus told them that if you're without fault, go ahead and cast the first stone, something they hadn't thought of. He wrote in the dirt, and they filed out one at a time, leaving their rocks behind. And it's a reminder to us that we're not to throw stones, that we're not to direct our attention against people, kicking them when they're down or judging them to be inferior to us, but we're to walk in the forgiveness of God. Now, the woman was guilty of adultery. Jesus never questioned that at all. Of course, since he was the only one without fault, He really couldn't have convicted her because it takes at least two witnesses who are qualified, and and there was only one. But also, it's not that he just takes away the punishment of sin. There's a concern sometimes when we see a story like this, and, and we think, but wait a minute, doesn't sin need to be judged? Can you always just walk away after sin? Well, her sin was judged, but it was judged on Jesus. He, by setting her free, he was saying, I'll pay the price. And he would, and believe me, he paid a dear price for her sin and for ours as well. But because he paid that price, he can set us free. He can say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is radical thinking. It was a shock to the Jews there as they watched it happen. It was so shocking that later on in some Bibles, They actually took this story out, and some of your more modern translations, the NIV and the New American Standard, the New Living Translation, if you look in the margin, they'll usually say, some older manuscripts don't contain these verses. You can see why they would knock it out. Boy, you could misunderstand this. They misunderstood it, and people today misunderstand it. It's in the vast majority of the manuscripts, and even the people who suggest that maybe it shouldn't be in the manuscript they say it probably really happened. Nobody's going to add this many verses and this kind of a story to the Bible and have it be copied in so many old manuscripts. I believe the story happened. I believe it belongs in there. There's a weird gap if you take it out. 
But the reason why it's controversial and the reason why people would sometimes wish it never happened is because we don't understand how Jesus does things. We don't get it. The, the economy of heaven, the economy of grace is something that we are always in danger of misunderstanding and missing out. And as we look in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see and get some ideas of several ways in which you can miss out on God's voice. You can think you've got it figured out and you really mess up. There are some things in here that we want to avoid in our own lives. If we don't, we'll miss his voice, we'll misunderstand God. Now, until we get to heaven, we're never going to have a perfect understanding of God. But if we make some of the mistakes of John chapter 8, then we will miss out on God's voice an awful lot of the time. And the first one we see right in here, it's that picking up stones to condemn others. It's, it's directing our attention negatively against someone instead of positively toward that which God has done. But as we go on in the chapter, well, in verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Walking in darkness, John has a lot to say about this. Over in the book of 1 John, he talks about it as well. It's the idea of either, well, walking in a room like this with the lights on, it's pretty easy. Even if your vision isn't what it used to be, you can still pretty much pick your way through this room. But dim the lights a little bit or turn them off completely and turn off the dove and the Christmas lights and everything, it's kind of, I, I walk through this, this room sometimes when the lights are off, and it's a little scary. You don't know if somebody leaves a chair out in the middle of nowhere and you crash into it. And It's like when you get up in the middle of the night and, and uh, your furniture has been moved around, maybe you're redecorating or something, and boy, you run into a dresser or something that's right in the middle of the floor, and, and you just, it's like, man, I hate when that happens. Well, what Jesus is saying is there are some people who walk through life seeing the light of Jesus. Life virtually makes sense to them because they're trusting him and he's leading them and they understand what God is saying. But he says there are also people who are just stumbling. They're guessing at what God wants them to do. They're not hearing his voice. They're not feeling led by him. And so clumsy things happen. Damage occurs. Injuries happen. And I think we can all relate to sometimes it feels like we're walking in the dark. Oh, there are times in our walks with the Lord where it's great. He lights everything up. It all makes sense. There are other times, days, weeks, months, even years, when we feel like I don't get it. I can't see what I want to see. I, I can't hear what I need to hear. And Jesus is saying the key to this is me. If you walk with me, you'll walk in the light. If, if you miss out on what I'm doing, you're going to feel like it's dark. You're going to be stumbling a lot. And so we'll see several clues looking through this passage as to some reasons why people are stumbling in the dark instead of walking in the light. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, 
but I am with the Father who sent me. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. The first thing we see that can trip us up, that can cause us to walk in darkness, is judging. Judging according to the flesh. Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh, verse 15. I judge no one. It's so important that we not jump to conclusions based on what we immediately see. One of the ways to get so far off track in our walk with the Lord and our relationships with others is to be constantly reacting to what we see. To hear something and immediately we want to react. I, I can't even tell you how much misery I know I've experienced in my life and how much misery I've inflicted on others when I've judged. I think I hear what's going on and I jump to conclusions and in my flesh I hear myself say that statement that should scare you to death. This is a no-brainer. This is a slam dunk. This is easy. And in the flesh I go, I know what to do. I know what's happening. Sometimes I judge people that way. I just meet them and first impressions, that's it. I like you. I, we hit it off well. Or you bug me. We don't hit it off well. And I make these kinds of value judgments that the Bible tells us not to make. And I do it in the flesh. And when you do that, the problem is you miss out on so much of what God wants to say and do because you think you already have. It's like when you're putting a puzzle together. And if you get a couple pieces put together wrong and you try to make everything else fit with those pieces, it doesn't work. And that's what happens when we judge according to the flesh. We jump to conclusions and then we say, okay, this is what I know. Now, how do I interpret all the rest of reality in terms of what I don't know as it will fit together with this thing that I certainly know? And I find, and I'm sure you do too, some of the things that I know for sure, it turns out they aren't so. I jumped to a wrong conclusion at one point. I remember years ago as a youth pastor, there were times when we put car rallies together. And car rallies are where you follow the directions and then you go to the next spot and then you get more directions and you go to the next spot. And you do things like count six signals and then the third stop sign after the sixth signal turn right and then cross three railroad tracks and turn left and invariably the, of course the problem is a lot of times it's kids who put the plan together and so they aren't maybe as precise or maybe it's because old people put them together and they don't see well at night but at any rate I on in most car rallies I've been in that I've participated in people end up really lost and you know, you're, you're on the freeway in San Bernardino and you're just going, no, I'm sure we still haven't seen another signal. And, and you just go, how did this happen? Well, once you get off a little bit, then you're way off because every other instruction is in relationship to what you've done before. And that's the way life is. And so you, you make certain assertions and assumptions and you come up with a particular paradigm and everything else has to fit with it and you can get so far off. You can get so far out of sync because 
of judging in the flesh. Because of just making a snap judgment, an evaluation, coming to a conclusion, and now no matter what else happens, I'm not going to change my mind. And of course, in a car rally, what you have to do is you need to back up, backtrack. Go back to where you know you were in the right spot and count it off again and check it out again. And, and that's what we need to learn to do in life. Many of us never learn to do that. There are guys who write books. And in their books, they, come, they write them when they're young and not a lot of wisdom, and they come to some goofy conclusion. And the rest of their life, they spend defending what they said in that book. It's one reason why I've never written a book. I don't want to, I know, in my sermons, eventually people quit listening to them, you know, and, oh, people hear me on the radio, and then they forget what I say. So I can say stupid things, and eventually they kind of go away. But if it's in a book, people are going to be coming up to you going, look, here's what you said. And you have a choice to either say, yeah, I probably said something stupid, or you have the option of defending yourself. And so often we defend a position that was a wrong position from the beginning. And rather saying, I blew it, I messed up. And backtracking, we just stick with that and we defend that position. When we do that, we'll never walk in the light. We'll always be stumbling. We have to go back where we got off track. These, these Pharisees couldn't understand that. Judging according to the flesh. They had already decided who Jesus wasn't. They made that judgment. And so now they had to fit all the rest of reality into it. So when Jesus would do a miracle, well, they've already decided he's not the Messiah. So he does a miracle, well, he must have a demon. He must be doing it some other way. We do this a lot, a lot more than we realize. How important it is that we don't judge according to the flesh. Jesus spoke to them some more. They were gonna, uh, he spoke this in the treasury and the temple and nobody laid hands on him. Well, actually, let's go back up to verse 19. They said to him, where is your father? Because he said, the father who sent me bears witness of me. Where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. He says basically the same thing a little later in the chapter, as we'll see if we get that far. Um, in verse, over in verse 55, he says, You've not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. The second mistake that we can make after we jump to conclusions, make judgments in the flesh, sometimes we make mistakes and we're in error because we just don't know God. Often, what we know about God will push aside in order to continue to try to be consistent in what we say that we believe. So there are theologies that develop that if you just knew God, you'd know it's not correct. You may not understand, for instance, all of the, the ins and outs of, of the five points of Calvinism and the five points of Arminianism. It, it, someone may talk to you about it and make your head spin. But if you know God, you'll know one thing isn't true. God can't be responsible for evil. This world, something's wrong in it. But see, for someone who takes an extreme uh, reform position, they have to believe that this world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Because their concept of God's sovereignty says that he's in control of all and he's the one who's moving behind all. Now, they can defend their position. And some of them can defend it quite well. 
But I'd propose to you, there are certainly ways of refuting the position, but, but the greatest of which is, if you just knew God, you wouldn't think that. You wouldn't look at children who are dying. You wouldn't look at innocent people being slaughtered. You wouldn't look at our soldiers being killed in the war, the crime that's going on, the disease and all that exists in this world, and say, yep, it's exactly the way God wants it. Common sense and relationship with God would cause you to realize something's wrong here. And what Jesus is saying is, part of your mistake is you just don't know me. You don't know my Father. If you knew him, you'd know me. If you knew me, you'd know him. That's why it's so important to know him. Because knowing him is more important than interpreting theology. Knowing him is more important than even knowing the word of God. As important as that is, the word of God is the way in which we get to know him. But Paul also prayed that he would know God. And he prayed that the believers would. He said he discounts everything that he had going for him, and he counts it but dung compared to knowing Christ. That was the trade-off that he made. All my theology, push it aside, I want to know you. He encouraged and prayed for the Christians that in Ephesians that, that they would somehow get to know God, that they would get to know the length and depth and height and breadth of his love, even though it's past knowledge. That personal knowledge of God is so important. I've met people who are fairly young Christians, fairly uh, unsophisticated in their theological understanding, and yet they've come into a relationship with God, and when they hear things that aren't right, they just know. They just go, I don't think God would do that. Now, it's really important that this is based on God's revelation of himself. But at the same time, it's important for us to know God and not just know about God. To spend time with him, not just spend time learning about him. It's not, there are some people that I may know a lot about them. I like reading biographies and autobiographies, and there are a lot of characters that I know a lot about them. And I've read much about them. But I don't, pretend to think that I really know them, I know about them. But you don't know someone by knowing about them. You know someone by being in relationship with them. And that was their problem, and that'll be our problem too. We'll be stumbling in the dark if we don't have a relationship with God, if we don't really know Jesus and know God and interpret all of reality in light of the one we know. He goes on to say, to them, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, what's he going to kill himself? Where I go, you can't come. What does that mean? And he said, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So here's another way to misunderstand, to miss the boat, to be misled. He's, Jesus says, you're from down here, and I'm from up here. If we don't understand that God is operating on a different plane than we are, that he does things in a way that we don't immediately comprehend in our own environment, if we start to try to understand God in light of just what we can understand, then we'll always simplify God and boil him down to something less than what he really is. Really, all of idolatry is boiling God down. 
it's limiting him in some way. It's defining him in a way that's less than what he really deserves. And that's what they were doing. By being from down here, they couldn't understand that spiritual plane. It's why Paul says, unless you're a spiritual person, you can't understand spiritual things. It just doesn't work. It doesn't click. Because it's two different worlds, two different ways of doing things, two different principles. It means that if we want to understand heavenly things, we need the help of the Spirit of God to do that. It's not just something we can figure out on our own. And they're spiritually discerned, Paul said to the Corinthians. So you can't understand them unless you're walking in the Spirit. That means also that we need to suspend our need to make sense out of everything. That we need to accept the fact that there's another world that's bigger than this world that we see. That there's supernatural. That there are things going on that we can't explain by naturalistic phenomenon. We accept the fact that there's a spiritual realm. That there's spiritual warfare in spiritual places going on. That it's not just about what we see and what we know. Jesus is trying to tell them he's God. But how do you say that simply and have it be complete? I often have been frustrated that Jesus didn't grab them and shake them and say, look, I'm God, okay? But think about it. Would they have understood that? He's saying, I am, unless you believe I am. You're dead, you're going to die in your sins. I am was their name, was the name that God gave for himself in the Old Testament. So they should have clicked, but at this point they didn't. He keeps saying it over and over in this chapter and finally said, before Abraham was, I am, and then they understood what he was talking about. But the thing is, to say I am God, they could have still jumped to all kinds of wrong conclusions. Because he's God, the Father's God, they're in relationship, he's a man, he's here in his flesh. It's not just something that he could explain simply. It's something that on the spiritual plane, we have to submit ourselves to the Spirit in order to even begin to comprehend the ramifications of all of it. So he said, I am, the he is in italics there in verse 24, and they said, who are you? You am, you am what? What are you? They didn't get it. And Jesus said, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And they didn't understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. So here's another problem, another blockage. He says, once you see the Son of Man lifted up, it's going to start to make sense. And the hurdle here, the, the blockage here that causes us to walk in darkness is not comprehending the cross. A little later on this evening, in a few minutes, we'll be celebrating communion, remembering the death of Jesus Christ. There's so much that doesn't make sense until you understand the cross. Until you see that that's how he's lifted up, that's how our sins are taken care of. And if you don't believe in the cross, nothing else is going to make much sense to you. If you haven't seen that and understand, it's why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He wasn't saying wear a cute little necklace. 
He was saying, take up your cross. Realize it's about the cross. And it's so important for us to get that because if we don't get it, suffering won't make sense to us. But when we see the cross and we begin to understand what that means, we recognize that God, there are certain things he can only do through death. I've been thinking lately a lot, someday I may write a book about this, about the fact that Christianity doesn't work. (gasps) What? No, it really doesn't, let's face it. Christianity for Jesus, he taught, thousands of people listened, Uh, great multitudes, great miracles happened, raised people from the dead. We go, man, it was going really well. But then almost everyone fell away. He had 12 disciples, the ones that were closest to him. He poured his life into them to three years, for three years. One of the closest, Peter, ended up denying him three times, running away in fear when the chips were down. The other one, Judas, who was his CFO, his accountant, ended up completely, first he was embezzling the whole time, And then he ended up selling Jesus out, betraying him. And so where were they? Where were all the disciples? They all kind of ran away. When he came back, they didn't believe he was alive at first. Thomas wanting to put his finger in the holes in his hands. It didn't really work very well for Jesus by our standards. And that's my point. If we look at things through at the way they really are, we'll realize that we can't judge success based on pragmatics. And I think it's something that causes so many Christians to be walking in the dark, to be tripping over things, to, to feel like my life doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? Why has this occurred? Why does this hurt? Why am I in pain? Because the world has brainwashed us, and sad to say, churches have jumped on the bandwagon to give us the idea that if you're doing it right, it's going to work. It's going to be successful. Everything your hand touches, it's you know, going to be huge and, and wealthy, and it's just, boy, if it's not that way, if your life is hurting, then something's wrong because God wants you to have it all. No, he doesn't. That's not what Christianity is. That's the view of of pragmatics apart from the cross. But if we understand that we are created to lose, to hurt, to be shot down, if we understand what Paul learned as he described it over there in 2 Corinthians, when he said he prayed for this thorn in the flesh to go away and it didn't go away, and finally God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength will be perfected in your weakness. Until we figure that out, and the only way to figure it out is to look at the cross, is to understand the death of Jesus and what it meant, and how it flipped everything upside down as far as what successful means, then most of our lives won't make sense. We'll, We'll be floundering. We'll be going, I thought an abundant life was a life of, No problems. But then the Son of Man's lifted up. We look at the cross and we realize, no, the abundant life doesn't have anything to do with this world's description of what's full and complete. Jesus lived a full life, 33 years of it, only ministering for three. But in the end, he said, it is finished. And he had accomplished everything that he was supposed to accomplish. It went just according to plan. And yet, 
He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid our faces from him, Isaiah says, because of that. If you can't see the cross, if you don't understand that, then you're going to be stumbling on all sorts of other things. And that was their problem. And he says, hey, when the Son of Man's lifted up, you're going to figure out some things. And we will too. Verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. They heard what he was saying and, and they believed him. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? And Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. The blind spot here, the problem that we see here, involves being trapped in sin. It involves being slaves. If we don't understand that we're enslaved, we can't understand the freedom to which God calls us and that work of grace that he wants to do in our lives. So we're walking as slaves because sin has a hold on our life. And as a result, as Paul said to the Romans, you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because of your sin, you won't face the truth. You don't want to hear what I have to say. I'm trying to set you free, and you won't let me. I read a story recently. I might have shared this with you, but there was a reporter from the um, New York Times, I believe, who was over in Cambodia, and he, one of the things that he wanted to do to write a story was he was going to go buy a couple of prostitutes and set them free. They had been slaves since they were little kids, just doing unspeakable things for a pittance of money and having their lives run by an evil person. And, and so this reporter went over and he negotiated for one gal. It was $50 and he bought her and he owned her. And then there was another gal and she was a little more, about 70 bucks. And he came to an agreement and paid the $70 and she wouldn't come. She ran back in her room and locked the door and began to cry. She didn't want to be freed. The reason? Well, her cell phone was in the pawn shop. And she wanted to get her cell phone out of Hawk before she would leave. He finally agreed to go get her cell phone for her. And then she had some jewelry in there, cheap costume jewelry that she wanted as well. Ultimately, he was able to get her free, but you know what would happen. She'll go back. There are some people who just won't be freed because sin has such a grip on their lives. And if we don't let go of our sin, we'll never understand the freedom that is ours in Christ. And so the ones who believed, they got it, and he set them free. And they experienced that rejoicing, that, that expression of satisfaction as God has freed them. But to others, they were slaves of sin and would remain so. But if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I think sometimes we still act like we're slaves. We still act like we're dependent. We still act like we're um, under the control of the enemy. And God's telling us we're free. 
Sometimes we actually substitute that imprisoning quality of sin and we become imprisoned in some other way to a set of rules. We move from being slaves to sin to slaves of the law, of legalism. And it's a sad thing whenever a Christian is living in slavery. Whenever a Christian is doing what they're doing because they feel like they have to. It's just the burden. Or because they feel like someone else expects them to. Slavery. God hasn't called us to slavery. He's called us to freedom. And if we choose to live as slaves, slaves of a set of rules, slaves of that need that we seem to have to please everyone, slaves to other people's opinions, slaves to, to other things that will addict, other things that will suck us in and control us, whatever they are, wrong relationships, bad habits, um, even just wasting time, frittering away your life. When you're a slave, you're walking in darkness. Jesus said, I came to set you free. Don't feel like you have to. Don't let people pressure you or push you or control you. Don't live like a slave. I think a lot of times some of the most intense slavery that we have is just worrying about what people think of us. Oh, no. What if they think that? Oh, we, we make ourselves miserable, wondering, are they thinking this? Or is this person saying that? Or, oh, I hope this doesn't look this way. Or I hope someone doesn't catch me here or doing this and feeling obligated to always explain ourselves. It's a type of slavery. God doesn't want us to live that way. Another type of slavery that we in our culture live under is the tyranny of the urgent. As someone has written a book about the tyranny of the urgent. This feeling that if something's an emergency, we have to do it. And the clock and our to-do list and our, the expectations people have of us, it just drives us. And we don't even know what we're driving for. We don't even know why this is so important. It's just we have to do it because it needs to be done. And the tyranny of the urgent is something that keeps us from really not only waiting on the Lord and, and seeing what he wants to do, but it causes us to just go through the motions of life and not really be thinking about what God wants us to do and not really be taking our orders from him at all. We're taking our orders from the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. We're hurrying to do things. We get a piece of junk mail in the mail. And if it says, urgent, must be opened by such and such, you go, I know this is junk mail. This can't possibly be urgent. It may be some investment scam or phony life insurance pitch or home refinance offer or something, but there's something inside us that we just have to open it. On the other hand, you get bills, you know what those look like. There's no emergency to open those things. You toss them aside and wait until they really pile up and start getting second notices, and then you do it. But it's an emergency to do the things because somebody says we ought to do it. It's a part of what Christmas shopping is all about, really. It's imposing a deadline and saying, you've got to beat that deadline. Every sale that's out there, six hours only, or just until this day. And, and so, oh no, I've got to do it. Those Costco coupons that they send you, it's really smart. It's like, okay, each week there's another coupon that works. And so, 
I go, oh man, it's December 15th. I think that, that power shredder, cross-cut shredder, this is the week when that's available. I need to go buy it. Why? What, what do you have that you need to shred? Well, you know, you never know. Lettuce? I don't know. It's just, but look, it's $10 off. And we allow our lives to just be driven by that kind of pressure. The pressure to, to do what's expected of you. The pressure to beat the deadline. The thing that impresses me so much about Jesus, one of the things is, he was never in a hurry. I am often in a hurry. And when I'm in a hurry, it shows me something. It shows me that I'm living like a slave. When I'm supposed to live like someone who's free. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He goes on to say to the, not to the believing Jews, but to the others, he says, I know you're Abraham's descendants. You're trying to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. And they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this, you do the deeds of your father. Another problem that comes up that keeps us from walking in the light is we just don't look at his word. We don't obey his word. He said, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. See, they had the Bible that told about Abraham. If they had read about Abraham, they would have seen in the Pentateuch all sorts of indications of who the Messiah would be. Jesus fulfilling these predictions about the Messiah. And yet, because they knew the stories, but because they didn't see it as his word, they didn't receive it as his message to them, well, they missed out. They didn't get it. They tripped up. And for us as well, and he's going to go on and talk about this some more, if God's word isn't dwelling in us, as Paul told the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If it doesn't, if we don't live in this book, if we don't spend time reading it and studying it and learning it, well, life's going to be dark. Because the Lord said, well, over there in Psalm 119, it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Without the word, life doesn't make sense. And we need to live in the word and to receive from it. A couple weeks ago, John Corson was talking about, he, and John does this, he has his Bible with him all the time. And people go, man, do you have a photographic memory? You know the Bible so well. And John goes, no, I just, I read it constantly. I keep it with me all the time. And he, when we, we go out and, and eat lunch or whatever, he's always got his Bible there on the table. But he was saying, you know, he, he had some statistic of how much time we spend sitting at red lights in our life if we drive. And it's just an enormous amount of time. And he said, how much more of the word would you know if you just sat there? Every time you're at a red light, you had your Bible right there, opened up on your lap, and you were reading the word of God. And then he said, I know what you're thinking, but, you know, how will I know when the light turns green? He said, oh, you'll know. <laughs> They'll let you know. <laughs> but how much of the time that we waste could we spend just learning his word and submitting to it? It's a light. It's a lamp. It, it illuminates existence. And if we don't know the Bible, we're not going to know much of anything else. So he talked about, you do the deeds of your father. And they said, hey, we weren't born of fornication. We have one father. That's God. They left Abraham out and they go, look, 
Jesus, we all know something was fishy when you were born. We counted off the months from your parents' wedding, and you're illegitimate, is what they're saying. We're not born of fornication. Hey, we know who our dad is. And they go, our dad is God. But we don't know who your dad is, and you don't either. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word again. Not just reading it, but really listening. Not just understanding what God's word is, going to church, reading a chapter a day to keep the devil away. But listening. I don't know about you, but sometimes... I'll start reading the Bible, and my mind just wanders off. It's just like, I go, what am I doing? I'm reading the Word, and my mind is clicking off somewhere else. This morning, in fact, I was reading the Bible, and I had going through my head Bohemian Rhapsody by going, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. Like, Come on, I'm trying to, where's this coming from? But he said, you've got to listen. If you're not able to listen to my Word, you're not going to get it. And we have to come to his word, but we also have to be ready to listen to it. That means when we open his word or when we go to church or when we flip on a Bible study or listen to a tape, we're not just saying, I'm going to check this out so I can rate it. I'm going to check this out and see if I'll learn something. But it's with the eyes of our heart saying, God, I want to listen to you. Now, tonight I've probably said some things already that are wrong or some things that you're certainly not understanding or you question or maybe you'd like to argue about it later. But the question is, are you listening to God? Not listening to me. That's not, there isn't anything in the Bible that says, because you don't listen to Dave, you know, no, that's not it. But are we really listening to his word? Are we really listening to what God wants to say to us? And every time we open this book and every time we talk with someone about this book and our Christian walks, in our discussions, in our Bible studies, in our worship, as we're singing songs of praise to God, are we really listening? And that takes discipline, and it takes making a conscious effort to say, I'm going to open your word, and God, I want to hear your voice to me. I need to hear something right now that applies specifically to what I'm going through, because I believe that whatever it is that you're going through in life, God has a special word for you. But you may hear it and you may not. It just depends whether you're listening or not. I'm amazed how many times, even one of the things that I, I try to do every day is to read a chapter of Proverbs based on the date. Whatever the date is today, I read that chapter. I'm amazed how many times in that particular chapter, three or four things that are exactly what I needed to hear. Now, it's not every time because it's not a magic thing that way and it's not just the Proverbs. Sometimes I read the proverb and you know it's talking about sleazy women and I'm like, no, I'm just not there. And so I'll have to go over and read some other passages of scripture for God to speak to me. But it's so important that I listen to his word and that you listen. If we're not listening, we won't get it. Not just understanding it and hearing it, listening personally and wanting to hear from him. But then he goes on to say, you're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. So being, having your mind affected by the lies of the devil, being lied to is another way of getting tripped up and walking in darkness. And that's what he was saying to them. The devil, who he is, he's defined as being the liar, the father of lies. You know, no one ever lied until the devil decided to. When God created everything, there was no such thing as a lie. The only thing that Satan created was lying. He decided to do it. He figured out, I can move away from the truth. And as we're affected by him, we learn the same thing. I don't think that there's probably anything more important for us than to know the truth, than to listen to the truth, than to tune our ears so that we can know a lie when we hear it. I did a study with the high school kids last week and we were talking about that. And then we played a game where we had each person came up front and told a story about themselves. And it could either be a lie or the truth. And then we could ask them a couple of questions and try to figure out who was lying. And it's a, it's a fun game to perform, but it's a crucial skill to develop as believers. We need to not be stupid. We need to get to the point where we can tell baloney when we hear it. We can recognize a lie. And where that happens is the truth has to be the most important thing to you. See, a lot of times, as uh, Jack Nicholson said in a A Few Good Men, I think it was, you can't handle the truth. And sometimes we can't handle the truth. There are sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. There are times when I'm trying to explain something to someone I can just tell. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know the truth. They'd rather feel safe and secure in what they believe. Oh, don't rock my boat. Don't rattle my cage. But you know what? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we don't ever have to fear anything from the truth. What we need to fear is lies telling lies to ourselves, telling lies to others, believing lies from others, that needs to be our most basic anchor in life. If you tell the truth, there are going to be some people that don't like it. They don't want to hear it. They are more comfortable believing lies. But we're, we will be nuts if we continue to get, allow ourselves to be lied to. Because it leads to all sorts of other lies in order to compound the whole thing. I want to know the truth. And I appreciate people who will tell me the truth. Even when it's not popular. Even though it may be painful to me, I need to hear it. Because that's my anchor. In philosophy, they have a a study or a science that they call epistemology comes from the Greek word episteme, which is truth. And and the idea is, how do you figure out what's true? Epistemology. The study of figuring out what's true. Jesus says, know me and you'll know the truth. The sad thing is, a lot of times, people will lie in the name of the Lord. We'll lie because we think, well, God wants me to be loving, and the most loving thing to do here is just to tell a lie. Or I know how this is supposed to turn out, so I'll lie and help it go that way. Or, you know, I lied, and now I need to lie to cover up my lie. But Jesus makes it really clear here. No, there are two things. There's lies, and there's truth. And lies come from Satan. 
And if you will allow yourself to believe a lie, you'll keep believing more lies. But if you focus on the truth, if you always just want to go, I want to know what's really the deal. It's why I believe we don't have to fear from science, for instance. Oh, so many times Christians are just afraid to hear those ideas that may challenge their faith. But you know, as Christians, we never need to fear the truth. Eventually, the truth will always win out. It's interesting that just this last week, um, a very well-known um, philosophy professor from Oxford, he's not a Christian, but he's been one of the most outspoken atheists in the world. And now he's, through the studies of science, he's come to the conclusion that it's preposterous to suggest that this world could exist apart from an intelligent being who designed it. Now he says, I still don't believe in a hereafter. He will. He's 81 years old. He's going to find out about it pretty quick. But he said, he came out with the statement, the Socratic statement, that I'll follow truth wherever it leads me. Now, sometimes we get so jaded that we think, oh, those people out there, they're not following the truth. But we're afraid of the truth sometimes. And we don't allow people to have their saying. We tend to censor everything and we want to hear everything just from our perspective. It's important to me that I listen to atheists. It's important to me that I know why other people believe what they do. If I'm in a hassle with someone or interacting with someone, it's important for me to listen to them. I don't have anything to fear from the truth because Jesus Christ is the truth and Satan's a liar. And Satan cons us into avoiding hearing things that we don't want to hear, sheltering ourselves because deep down inside sometimes we're afraid of what the truth will reveal. I remember... Years ago, some of us were standing around at my seminary being critical of, of Billy Graham because he allowed some Catholics and some liberals to be on his platform at a crusade. One of our professors came up and started talking to us, and he said, you know what? He said, when Elijah went up on Mount Carmel, he shared the platform with the prophets of Baal, and he let them have the morning service. But after it was all over, everyone knew who the real God was. You know, I think sometimes for Christians, in a, in a, we put a spiritual covering over this notion that I don't want to know, eh, you know, don't, don't tell me, I don't want to ask any questions, I don't want to be involved. Hey, we need to be open to hearing everything that's offered up because if we have him working in our lives, we'll know what the truth is. But you can't know the truth if all you listen to is lies. And so we need to subject what we hear to that filter of shining the light of God's word on it, shining what God says about it, taking a look at it. And we better not be the kind of people who are like the Pharisees who when they heard something they didn't like, they would plug their ears and start yelling and chattering and gnashing their teeth because, oh, I don't want to hear this. There isn't anything I'm afraid to hear. There, and, and as far as that goes, sometimes you're tempted, like if I know that someone's bugged at me or, you know, they disagree with me, there's a temptation to go, oh, no, I don't want to hear what they have to say. Oh, man, I can just tell by this letter. I open it up, and usually when you get a letter from somebody that starts out by saying, I really love you, then you're going, oh, boy, what's coming next? 
It's like people who say, you know, I don't want to be rude. It's a way of saying I'm about to be rude. <laughs> this is the way we are. But you know, I have learned so much by listening to people who are critical of me. I, some of my best helpers have been people who come and, and they might not be right about everything, but I want to hear it because I'm interested in the truth. If you're more interested in your own position than you are in the truth, you're going to be stumbling in the dark. It's as simple as that. Shine the light on, you'll know what the truth is, you'll know what a lie is. Often we just don't want to know. Jesus goes on here and the, the Jews said, hey, do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They're going, oh, you're calling us, you know, saying that we're inspired by Satan. We're saying that you're a Samaritan and a demoniac. <laughs> they're getting kind of, they're losing the argument, so they're just pulling out the junior high kind of tactics. And Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I don't seek my own glory. That's something that Jesus says several times. And, you know, when someone's not trying to bring glory to themselves, gives them some credibility. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall not taste death. He's going, what are you saying? You're greater than Abraham? Abraham died, the prophets died. Now you're saying people who believe in you aren't going to die? Are you greater than our father Abraham, the prophets? Wait, who do you make yourself out to be? Well, he's been telling you, I am, I am, I am. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. Again, remember, it's the first thing we saw. You've got to know God. If you really know him, things that he does make sense. So he says, you haven't known him. I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I'll be, like a li I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. <coughs> then the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Remember when, well, there were a few instances. Remember when God came and sent the angel to tell Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son. And, and they, they ended up naming him Isaac, which means laughter, because they were so excited. The angel of the Lord. It's Jesus, I believe. Every time in the Old Testament it says the angel of the Lord came, often he received worship and did other things that would indicate, in fact, the angel of the Lord is called Yahweh in several, in several cases. And Jesus is going, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That was my day. Perhaps also, after Abraham went and rescued Lot and the kings of Sodom, and he came to Melchizedek there. Melchizedek, this mysterious character that we see there in Genesis and again in the Psalms and then in the book of Hebrews. He was the king of righteousness, Melchizedek means, and and, of course, that's Jesus. And the king of peace, Jesus is 
called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9. It says in Hebrews that he didn't have mother or father, no generation. But he, he, but he had a, a form of a priesthood that was superior to the Levitical priesthood. See, <clears throat> in order for Jesus to be our high priest, he had to be qualified as a priest. But in their system, the priests came from the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. But the author of Hebrews makes the point there was a priest that was around before the Levites. In fact, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And in a sense, the Levites, who were three generations down the road from Abraham, paid tithes while they were in the loins of their father Abraham. And so therefore, Melchizedek has a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood. And the book of Hebrews goes on to tell us that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so again, another time in Abraham's life where he meets Melchizedek, and I believe Melchizedek was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he met him, and he bowed down to him, and he paid tithes to him. Another interesting thing, Melchizedek gave him bread and wine, the elements of communion, a picture in advance of that which we celebrate tonight, of what Jesus would do, his his redemptive work. And so Jesus could say to these people, I've been trying to give you a clue. I've been trying to explain to you, but you have all these problems that block you from hearing what I really have to say. So let me spell it out. Before Abraham was, I am. And then they got it. And they went nuts. They wanted to kill him. It wasn't his time yet, and he was able to just slip away. But he finally had to spell it out for them. Don't make God spell it out to you who he is. Just receive him, understand, accept him. But in order to do that and to walk in light, there are some things that we need to commit ourselves to. We need to commit ourselves to knowing him personally. We need to commit ourselves to turning away from the slavery of sin and of legalism. We also need to make sure that we're in his word, hearing from him, listening to his word. We also need to see life in light of the cross and understand what all that means. And if not, we're going to be walking in darkness. We're going to be stumbling around. But God gives us the opportunity to have our life just lightened up and overflowing with his truth and with who he is. And then to walk in truth. I always feel bad when I've been fooled. And I'm fooled plenty of times. Sometimes it's, as we saw in this passage, jumping to conclusions and judging in the flesh or thinking in the flesh and not functioning in the spirit. But Jesus says, I'm about truth. Satan's about lies. If you want to walk in lies, you'll walk in darkness. It'll, it'll just be that way. But if you'll devote yourself to the truth, to saying, I want to find out the truth. I want to know the truth. I, I want to receive whatever it is that God wants to tell me. I'm not afraid of the truth. I, I will handle it because he is the truth. Then God will lighten up our path. He'll open up the doors for us to walk with him. Life will make sense. We'll be walking in the light. If we don't want to hear it, if instead we just keep going the way we're going, we're going to be stumbling around making fools of ourselves. 
injuring ourselves and others, crashing, bumping into each other, wasting our time going in circles, not finding what it is that we're looking for, living our lives in such a way that it lacks fulfillment. And we're there in the dark going, what happened to me? Oh, we need to get back, back to that place of truth, back to that place of depending on the Spirit and listening to Him and, and living in the Word of God. And that's our hope. Otherwise, invariably, the natural flow of our lives will probably be to become a little more pharisaical because life's not clicking and we're not in fellowship with Him and we don't really know Him personally, so well, we'll fall back on religion and rules, going through the motions. That's not what he wants. He wants a real relationship with us. As we celebrate communion, this is the symbol that God has given us of that fellowship in a beautiful way, in a way that there's nothing else quite like it in our walks with the Lord. He says, do this in remembrance of me. The bread speaks of his body. The, the juice speaks of his blood that was shed. And he says, I want to be close with you. I want to be so intimate with you that I'm actually inside you. That as you partake of me, as, as you fellowship with me, that I become a part of you and you become a part of my body and we grow together, then I can live my life through you. And it'll all make sense. And ultimately, it's this fellowship, the fellowship that we have as believers, the closeness that he wants us to have. Close to each other because we're close to him. And I'll tell you something, when we get further from him, we'll also start getting further from each other. We'll start to isolate ourselves because the only way to fellowship is with him and each other. The opposite is true as well. If we allow division to happen between us, if we start getting sick of people and pushing them away and, and just deciding that I'm just going to do this by myself, then we'll also grow further from God. Because those people, though they may be hard to deal with, they're created in the image of God. And you get closer to people, you'll get closer to God. As I've said before, you don't get closer to God by going out in the woods and getting closer to a tree. That tree's gonna burn. That tree wasn't created in the image of God, but the people that you know, the people that you get sick of, they were. And so this communion is about what we have in common. It's a time for us to be close. It's a time for us to be close to each other and to be close to him as well. Because this is our commonness. This is our koinonia. This is what it's about. And it's only when we're together that everything else makes sense as well. Jesus, again, said, prayed for the Ephesians that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. That's the way we do it. We get it when we're together. It's why we come together. That's why this is so important. Let's pray. Lord, we know what it is to walk in darkness. We're not fooling you. 
we spend sometimes weeks just stumbling around. Not listening to you. Not facing the truth about ourselves. Not understanding our relationship to the cross and suffering. And we fall apart and we're led astray. And we start to believe lies. And we listen to everyone but you. But Lord, we've come together tonight before your table because we want you to be the light of our lives. We want you to light us up, to lead us and guide us in your truth. And Lord, we want to do it together. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.